ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next Podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Kimberly Crum. She's the founder and executive director of the Vaxless Group. She's an experienced executive with a results-oriented mindset and a passion for mission-driven entrepreneurship, capable of planning, implementing, and defining strategic direction and vision. Today, we're going to be talking to Kimberly about innovation. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. In your consultancy, you advise early-stage startups and newly formed divisions within established companies on how to innovate and build business ecosystems. Our focus today is on innovation, but before we dive in, can you briefly give us the view from 30,000 feet of your process and the conceptual framework in which innovation sits? Sure, I'd be glad to. We look at innovation first at a genesis, which is really ideation. How does a person come to an idea? What is the logic behind it? And then what are the hopes and gains that result from it? Uh, We very much believe that idea is innovation seed. And so we have to make a determination around whether or not that seed should be planted or not. Is that seed a weed that gets in the way of company's (laughs) growth and success? Or is that seed something that we should add to the farm because it makes the soil fertile and helps that business grow? At the highest level, I think if you think of an idea as a seed, then you can go from there. And every idea has a cause and effect to it. The cause and effect of acting on an idea versus not also plays into equal footing. And so then you know, you get into timing from that space. So then it becomes, is it a good idea or not? And then what is the readiness, sequencing, capacity needed to implement that idea? And that's what we at Access Group do. We look at ideas from a feasibility perspective and then a what's required perspective to implement and launch it. Great. Now let's drill down a bit into innovation itself. Is innovation something that has to be done at the strategic corporate level, or can it be run out of a division or business unit or even a functional line of service? For example, can marketing or HR have an innovation program independent of what's going on in the rest of the company? Yes and no. I wish there were straightforward answers to that question. I think <laughs> innovation can really happen. It's. I think it's more individual specific than role specific. If you're in a role and you identify an easier way to do your job, whether that that's reinventing a process or creating a widget or interacting with customers in a different way, maybe than anybody else's in your division. That in a sense is very much an innovative way to approach something. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with, you know, if you have a natural strength or inclination towards innovation, I think it's a great thing to begin to test and practice that. I think the risk of innovating without acceptance or without purpose or or direction from leadership is that you end up kind of creating a gray organization in a sense instead of a company. And so then there becomes this group of people who know all the workarounds and who know how to make things happen or get things done for customers or themselves. And that knowledge only sits and resides with them. And uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't 
create innovation for the company. When they leave, that intellectual knowledge leaves with them. Oh, and so it's it can happen. It it happens often. I'm not saying, and every company pretty much has a gray organization, especially once they hit you know S and P 500 and larger. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a normal occurrence, and it's not the greatest because you lose information along the way. And so the issue, the question is for innovation as a leader, mm-hmm. do I have a gray organization? Are people having to end around me or my company's processes in order to support my mission? Oh, so in some ways it could very well be that there is innovation. It already exists. You aren't aware of it. And so if those people leave, there are various slowdowns that will happen that you won't be aware of why you won't be able to know what's at the root of it. And so it almost sounds like you're saying one approach to looking at an organization and innovation is it may already be happening. Let's recognize it and see it and take advantage of it and make it institutional knowledge. Is that assume it's happening, Um, you know, and then take a look at that and say for that, for those components of gray organization, are they necessary? And should we formalize that into an innovation department? Or is this something that doesn't make sense for us to do because while this person is really smart, innovative and creative, you know, if we if we took what they do, we can't replicate. You know, you have to make decisions around that. But I think as leaders, it's really important to be purposeful around innovation. It's really important to be honest with yourself about what needs to be innovated. And then if you can do that, then what you'll find is people will come and talk to you about the things they're innovating, the things they're doing and the creative ideas they have, right? I have two questions that spring from that. One is you discover that there's this gray organization, there's some innovation, and it isn't something that you can scale or replicate. Do you stop that person from doing their work around? Do you allow them to continue their work around? You recognize it, but don't replicate it. That's question one. And question two is, do you form an innovation department? And very specifically, is there any risk that you create this little department of sparkly thinkers who then aren't integrated with the rest of the company? Yeah. So, so let's talk about that for the, for the employee who is innovating because maybe they're trying to solve for a problem, clients complaining or, you know, whatever the driver is behind Mm -hmm. it. For that individual, awareness requires something. So to your point, you look at that, you, if you can't roll it out to the rest of your organization, do you ask them to stop? Well, that's a great question. You know, do you have a high performing employee who should be in a succession plan for a growth track inside of your organization? And if you do, and they're naturally wired to innovate and make your company, your product, or your services better, then start assigning them to projects to do just that and give Mm -hmm. them the runway to begin to expand their skills and their career and help them get promoted inside of your organization. Right. A lot of times people innovate for selfish reasons. I mean, we're all selfish at the end of the day. And so... (laughs) Sometimes it's like, well, my job is too hard or something's going on and I just don't want to deal with it anymore. So I'm just going to do this thing and quote, innovate, but it ends up, you know, not working out so well. Right. And so I do think that should be shut down. I do think innovation that can't be replicated should be looked at to say, is this, is this a great thing, but we're not ready for it? You know, innovation is such a sexy word right now because there's so much happening in our planet, our business environment, that the speed of execution has increased as a need to survive. Right. right. And innovation becomes this buzzword. But I, I 
Do not believe in innovation for the sake of innovation. You, you need to know who your customer is and you need to have affinity with them um, inside and out. And so that way you understand, you know, why are they coming to me? And am I doing something that is going to foster that relationship or am I doing something that's going to annoy them because they didn't ask for new and improved? You know, innovation in and of itself has to be purposeful. I can't, I just can't say that enough. Innovation for the sake of itself is, is a, a, a revenue dream. <laughs> well, you know, what's really fascinating about that is oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, it's just like Steve Jobs. The customer doesn't know what they want until they see it. And that's used as a defense for doing all sorts of things. What's interesting is you're saying that is a dicey road to follow. It's a shiny shop. Uh, my grandmother used to take me shopping when I was little and I would be like, why are we going shopping? We don't need anything. And one day she got so frustrated with me. She said, Kimberly, you never know what you need until you see it. <laughs> a serial shopper. And so I can, I can see that if you have a retail product that you're trying to promote and you have an established brand like Apple, where people are going to upgrade mm. as a function of using your product. Steve Jobs was a brilliant guy, so I can't really say anything against him and his logic. I just think that what he said is situational and it's it's protected well, about industry. Well, I think that's what I'm driving at is that people will pull it out to defend anything anywhere. And yeah. that isn't necessarily the application of that thinking. I want to get back to the innovation department and whether you create a unit for innovation and if there are pros and cons of doing that. I am all for innovation units, but I do think that they come into play when a company reaches a certain size or scope. And also what are the drivers behind innovation? So if you're a restaurant who is affected by the pandemic, really don't have time to set up an innovation team to figure out, you know, how to, but you may, you know, gather everybody around one of the tables in the dining room and say, we have to survive. Let's brainstorm. Let's go now. And mm -hmm. that in itself is an innovative process to keep your business afloat. Right. Right. And necessarily formalized. If you're going to formalize innovation, I, I think that starts somewhere around 250 employees only because as you start to grow as a business, um, you start to then have to, the, the necessity for infrastructure has to happen. And so that's about the time when you start realizing you have to layer in management and the mom and pop kind of shop becomes too big for the the founder who started the company to carry forward in the same way they had previously. And so mm -hmm. with those layers of management, then you become less and less and less in touch with customer affinity. And, and I think the reason we should innovate is either um, for environmental or resource reasons or changes to the market itself. Um, but none of those things should happen if you don't have customer affinity, if you don't really know your customer inside and out and understand why it is they would want this or decline it. Um, and then what is the impact of the existing customer base um, for this change? And so around 250 employees, you start to need to create some type of way to listen to your customers and innovate and follow them. And so sometimes that shows up in the way of, you know, we have a, we have 
multiple fail points inside of our systems or, or service isn't exactly hitting the way it needs to and customers are complaining, which by the way, complaining customers are one of my favorite customers. Never underestimate the value of a complaining customer because they still care enough about your product or service to let you know that it's not working. And if you listen to them, um, you will identify what's required to make it work. And then you can look at the rest of your organization and say, who else could benefit from that? But they care enough to tell you and they're not just quitting and walking away and it's shredding. They're actually taking a minute to let you know it's not working. And so right. that's a level of effort and lift that is warrants yeah. a little bit of attention. Right. Yeah, that's that's a that's a customer I would drop in a focus group in a heartbeat. And, right. Um, you know, so so anyway, so I think as as it relates to formalizing innovation, I won't sidetrack anymore here. <laughs> it should be around 250 employees or more. And it should be uh, purposeful. I, I don't think you at that size company, you necessarily have to hire um, in a team of people to, quote, innovate. I think at that size, you can look at the innovators or the people who are naturally evolving and trying to make your product or service or mission better and make this a part of their job. And maybe one day a week or half a day a week, they participate in sort of a think tank. Can I just interrupt you one second? And and that is identifying these people and also maybe the cultural elements that help you to be successful in this. So are there certain skills you've said several times that the individual and the specificity around the individual matters. So are there certain things that you say that is a skill I look for? And similarly, are there certain cultural or skill aspects of a leader that tend when you're going in and you're helping people innovate? If you see them, you're like, ah, this is going to go more smoothly because of this thing or this skill set, this propensity. You know, I think employees are very much like customers. If you have a, an employee who is complaining because they're <laughs> fucking up against a process or a customer that isn't going well, chances are, and, and you can you can even internalize this for yourself. People complain about things. Oftentimes that's where their passion lies. Mm. It's something that's rubbing them. It's like, it's a, it's a bug, you know? Right. So it's like, you can't, so oftentimes our, our own iterative processes, um, you know, cause us to complain about something to figure it out. Right. Right. So we would look for people who are, are doing one of two things, either frustrated and trying to, you know, talking about it, trying to get help or support for change. Or I would look to um, people who are, are naturally really successful in their jobs without a lot of, um, they don't require a lot of management to be successful. I think talking to them to understand how they're doing their jobs, if they make it look easy, mm. uh, generally it's not any easier for them than it is anyone else. But they just have a way of approaching something that perhaps can speak to innovation. So look to behaviors uh, for for innovate, you know, identifying your innovators or your ideators. I would not look to people who who maybe have been in the job for a long time. They're they could be a part of a team in a sense of they know all the ins and outs of how something works, but they're not going to necessarily um, be the ones to raise their hands to ideate and make themselves or their teammates for that matter uncomfortable. Because when we're talking about innovation, what we're really talking about is change management. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and that's, that can be really uncomfortable to people and really threatening. Yeah. Yeah. we we'll, we all only like change when we're the ones initiating it. Right. And so if, if there's something that's disrupting your day or requiring something different of you and you don't buy into it, you know, that's not going to be fun. <laughs> Funnily <laughs> enough. Yeah. I guess that's how that works. Um, so when yeah. you're looking at leaders, then uh, it would be the same characteristics that make leadership strong in a change management environment, those same characteristics would prove successful in an innovative situation, it sounds like. Yeah. If you're looking for leadership innovators, I I think that that is something that is a little bit different. So I think if you look at a leader who wants to create an innovative company who not only keeps up with the tides of change, but actually can, you know, get on the board and surf them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something different that speaks to leadership's willingness to always have a getting better agenda. And there are ways to go about doing that to drive that culture inside of your organization. But as a leader, I do think it's very important to model that. And so there has to be a willingness to challenge and be challenged. There has to be a willingness to look at your baby and realize that they're, you know, in high school and still wearing diapers. And a lot of times you a lot of times leaders will do that, you know, getting to a certain point or size of a business, but once they hit a certain level, it starts to become uncomfortable for them and they want to coast a little bit, which I totally get being an entrepreneur and working until three in the morning every night. Right. Uh, I understand the want for that, but I think if you're going to be a leader who drives innovation in your, in your company, then you have to show resiliency. You have to show purpose. You have to be really, really good at communicating and getting people rallied behind the concept that the things that they do in their job every day matters. And here's why, and here's the impact you're having and here are your goals and keep them with you. A little bit of, you know, sprinkling of charisma in there is also pretty helpful, but um, being a leader who drives an innovative business requires you to model that drive and that want and that need. And when you do, people will, follow or they'll quickly exit because that's not a a comfortable environment for them. But what will definitely end up happening is you will attract that type of person to your organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you will create a model that people will look at who are innovative and say, that's a team I want to join. It's very interesting what you said about being willing to be challenged. Most of the conversation thus far has been about the context of an existing business, but you also work with startups and you've helped them successfully secure seed funding. So when you're looking at a startup, can you talk about what you look for in the startup ventures and, and also those personality traits that are important in that situation? Entrepreneurs are just so much fun. I really love working with them, even though they're oftentimes a little bit broke. (laughs) When somebody comes to me and they're not so far into the startup mode, let's say somebody comes to me with an idea, they want to bounce it off of somebody. How do I make this? How do I turn this into revenue? Or they have a passion for something. So how do I turn something I love into a career? 
for that, we talk about the idea, we kind of go down the path. And in every case, <laughs> this is not hyperbole, in every case with entrepreneurs, when they come up with an idea, it is the best thing that's going to change the world and make, you know, it's the unicorn. It's going to make a ton of money. And it's going to, it's going to change the planet. And so we talk about that. We go, you know, I'm excited to hear their dreams and their hopes for this idea and how they envision it playing out. And then, you know, at the end of that conversation, we have like a 30 minute consultation that I that I offer um, to go through those ideas. And then I say, OK, here's here's your homework for the next two weeks. And, you know, you know, this is a one time call. So if you never speak to me again, it's OK. But I hope you do this. And they mm-hmm. give them exercise of going through killing the idea. And um, all of it, you know, why wouldn't it work? Why hasn't it been done? Who's your competition? It's, it's a SWOT exercise of a kind, but it's specifically like shifting your mindset from this is the best thing ever. And I'm going to be the Messiah that saves the planet for my widget mm-hmm. to actually thinking, yeah, this doesn't work at all. And layering that into everything you look for, because if you if you have the perspective that this is the best thing ever, then anything you research is going to prove that. <laughs> right. So your confirmation bias is going to just be there. Your confirmation bias is going to kick in. And so take the bias that says this is a bad idea and I can't make money at it and then start asking you know, the tough questions, you know, why would this be, why would this be something that somebody would even want? And why hasn't this been done before? And if it has, then who's doing it? And, and really take time identifying, you know, is this actually a viable idea? And then, and then after you try to kill it, then, then maybe there's something that comes through that is viable. And so then you say, well, what is required to make this happen? You know, is this too cumbersome? How long would it take me to move, you know, my revenues from red to black? Could I ever even earn enough money to support myself? Or is this something that's just a side passion project? What skill sets do I lack? Um, right. And, and the biggest question after you answer all of that is, what are the sacrifices that I will need to make to bring this idea into fruition. It's hard to forecast that oftentimes, especially for new entrepreneurs, but you kind of get a sense for, okay, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build an app. I don't even know how to do that. Or, you know, whatever the example may be for the model or the business that you're after. So are, are, am I willing to stay up until three o'clock in the morning for the next two years to try to bring this thing into a reality? Learn the statistics. Call the SBA. They have, they have a great resource in there as to why businesses fail. They have a whole research department you can talk to to say, look. So I just for listeners, the SBA is the Small Business Administration, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So you can call them and say, look, I see your, I see the number here. They have a resource department that you can go to. What's the percentage of businesses that fail in this industry? And get specific about things and know where your fail points are, know what the resources needed and the demands to you and your friends and family for doing something like this. As you go through that experience, And as they go through that experience, I I can tell you that half of them call me back, maybe a little less, probably less. Mm -hmm. Them call me back in about two weeks. And what ends up happening is this curious thing, because as they go through the exercise of trying to kill it, if they come back and they still want to do it, knowing the obstacles and understanding there are more that they don't even know about, usually in that space, yes, I still want to do it 
helps them unpack their why. And of those that come back to me, probably 20% of them come back saying, okay, I thought, I thought I was doing it for this reason. But as I went through this, I actually identified this is the thing I want to build and this is why I want to build it. And that's the, that's the client I want to work with. Somebody mm-hmm. who understands why they would work until three o'clock in the morning, why they would sacrifice, why they would bet the house knowing the odds are against them. What level of sacrifice are you willing to make? And how compelled are you to do this thing that you're doing? Are you able to put it down? Right. Well, that's really interesting. The the exercise of killing the idea of all the reasons why it won't work. Do you just go through the exercise of killing it once? Or are you constantly saying, I'm going to put on my, you know, devil's advocate hat at yeah. this point. I mean, how, how frequently should you be doing that? Well, and that's for a new business idea and a startup for that matter. I think you go through the process of industries, SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. You're, mm-hmm. you're constantly looking at that to say, what, what is the thing that's going to champion my success or impede it? Oftentimes when you start a business, there's so many, you know, you know, the four stages of learning, um, there's so I'll tell you the four stages of learning. You're before you go into knowing something, the first stage is unconsciously incompetent, which is I don't know what I don't know. And and for me, that's like the best place to be. You're so, <laughs> so like it's like the world is, you know, the sun is shining, the possibilities are available, anything can happen. And you know, it's the it's that it's that space of possibility where dreams live and it's a wonderful place to be. Right. And then somewhere along the line, as you start to learn as a business or as an individual in anything, you know, then you hit consciously unconscious, which is that rut row moment where you say, there's so much, I don't know. And it gets a little overwhelming. And so you start to try to figure things out or ask for mentors or advice or information or research. Right. And then between consciously incompetent and the next stage, which is consciously competent, right. You know, you know what to do. You have the information you've learned what you needed to learn, but you have to think about it to make sure that you're doing things in the right way. And so there's, there's that state between knowing you don't know and knowing, you know, and that's mm-hmm. your learning curve, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get to the place where you're conscious, unconsciously competent, which means you put in your 10,000 hours, you've, you've you know, earned the time, you've earned the role, you've earned the seat, and you intuitively, or it feels like you intuitively know what to do without thinking about it. It just mm-hmm. becomes a part of your professional DNA. And in all of those stages, Critical thinking for and against any decision that your business has to make is absolutely necessary. The, the customers that I work with that hit the S&P 500 stage and larger that now are ready to look at creating a new division or product line or um, I just I just worked yesterday, in fact, with a client who has an underperforming division and they didn't know it. Oh, <laughs> so interesting. A bit of a wake up call and they were preparing for a board meeting themselves. And all of a sudden, you know, 
um, information about this department became available and they were um, actually planning to tout this department as one of the high performers. And so, yes, they're very productive and, you know, busy, but they're actually not generating revenue. Hmm. And so, you know, so you can, you can look at that on the, in the landscape of a company, no matter what size you are. Um, I think the, the, the bigger issue is really being a leader with a personal and a professional getting better agenda. And to do that, you must have curiosity in play. You must always ask the question. There's a, a great little book. It's an easy read um, QBQ question behind the question that I highly recommend um, because it, it talks about the idea of not just being curious and learning, but also asking the extra question to confirm that what you're saying or what you're communicating is the same thing as another person is communicating. Sometimes we use the same words, which just mean very different things. Right. Right. And so really always spending that time to be curious and then layer that into critical thinking for your organization, I believe is one of the keys to success for innovation. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. I think it's so valuable for anybody who's thinking of starting a business or really wants to improve the business they're currently in. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. We reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.